0: Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where I look back at a wartime tragedy from October 1942, the sinking of the Lisbon Maru, which had more than 1,800 prisoners of war on board. In this program, I talk with Major Brian Finch, who translated the accounts of fishermen who saved nearly 400 men in the waters off Zhou Shan, China's easternmost point. The Lisbon Maru was a Japanese troop ship, and the prisoners of war, came from a camp at Sham Shui Po, taken from Hong Kong during the Japanese military occupation in the Second World War to Japan to be used as slave labour in the factories and dockyards there. But off the eastern coast of the mainland, on October the 1st, 1942, the troop ship, which showed no markings that it was carrying prisoners of war, was torpedoed by the US submarine, the USS Garupa. Many men would drown in the ship, others would be shot and killed as they jumped into the sea. 384 would be saved by fishermen from three islands in Joshan, who repeatedly came back in their sampans to pick more men up. The Lisbon Maru Association collected these fishermen's accounts and Major Brian Finch has translated them in the book A Faithful Record of the Lisbon Maru Incident.
1: When I joined 1st Battalion, the Middlesex Regiment, on the wall of the officer's mess was a sketch of the Lisbon Maru and everyone in the battalion knew the story in outline and I learnt of the story and also learnt that a chap called Major Frank Waldron who was a quartermaster had been on the ship when it sank.
0: What's a quartermaster?
1: He's the guy that basically supplies all the equipment for the battalion.
0: So you were an officer in the Middlesex Regiment so when did you join?
1: I joined in 1960. I was commissioned from Sandhurst at the end of 1960 and then joined the battalion shortly thereafter.
0: And you came across a quartermaster, Frank Waldron, who was a survivor of the Lisbon So, right. And what sort of character of a man was he? He was one of the most gentle, charming men you
1: could, you could possibly ever expect to meet. A, a real gentleman, and great fun, um, had a great sense of humour, and it's hard to believe that he'd been involved in such an awful experience, and like most people of his age he didn't talk about his experiences during the war, certainly not to me, I mean, I was just a young Sprog and he was, he was a, a pretty senior officer.
0: But you first became aware of the Lisbon Maru through his sketch which actually is now on the front of your book.
1: That's correct, yes. Uh, and there's, there's quite a history to that sketch because it was drawn by an American sailor uh, who had been on a submarine, not the one that, that sank the Lisbon Maru, a different submarine. Uh, he was also taken prisoner and when he was in the prisoner of war camp he drew the sketch from the accounts of eyewitnesses in the prisoner of war camp who had been on the ship and it was then rolled up in a bamboo cane and kept hidden from the japanese for a couple of years in the camp and then brought out by uh, a major chris mann who later became major general chris mann colonel of the regiment and it now sits in the national army museum in Chelsea.
0: Take me back to September 1942 and why these prisoners of war that were based in Shamshoi Po camp were being moved to Japan.
1: Coming back to September 1942, the Japanese government uh, decided it wanted to have more men in the armed forces. They were running out of men as the Pacific campaign was expanding. And so they decided to take prisoners of war from all around the Pacific area that they had captured, take them back to Japan to work as slave labor in various industries, so that would release their own Japanese men to join the armed forces.
0: Those men in Shamsiopo, I mean, did they, uh, I know from one of the survivors who still lives today, Dennis Morley, that uh, he actually said that there was an expectation by some of the prisoners that conditions would be better in Japan, that there would be more food.
1: Uh, well, they were told that they were going to a wonderful country where they would be well treated. Of course this was far from the truth but this is this is what they were told some believed it but I think many didn't
0: and so they were taken on board the Lisbon Maroon how many were there about 2,000
1: there were 1834 who left on the Lisbon Maroon and they were split into three holds the Royal Navy were in the forward hold the bulk of the soldiers were in in the middle hold the Middlesex Regiment the Royal Scots Royal Engineers Royal Signals uh, and, and many other units and then the rear hold uh, number three hold was the Royal Artillery, uh, and they had the toughest time of all.
0: Now, th- an account of the Lisbon mm. Maru has been written up by Tony Banham uh, a few years ago. Your emphasis is very much the Lisbon Maru story again, but from the perspective of Chinese fishermen who would later, after the, the ship had been torpedoed, and the men were trying to get out of these holds that were flooding. You then describe this uh, incredible incident where these fishermen are coming repeatedly back in order to pick up and save the lives of some of the soldiers who were in the sea. So you've actually taken this account uh, given to the Lisbon Maru Association by these fishermen of that situation and using your Mandarin skills. But um, if we go back, so you've got a situation where these men are held in these holds and I think what is difficult I find when I'm reading this and I also heard this from Dennis Morley uh, I think is is very important from your account is just the disgusting um, circumstances in which these men have to live uh, in the dark uh, or You know, in, in, some have disease, some are at great risk of, of disease because of these very, very unsanitary conditions. And I think it is important to write that. So many war stories, you don't focus on that. It, it's made into this rather gung-ho, and actually the reality was just so appalling.
1: Absolutely. I mean, the, the conditions were absolutely disgraceful and disgusting. Uh, they were empty holds in a cargo ship. It wasn't a passenger ship of any, any description. Um, the bottom of the holds was filled with rat-infested detritus. The the space was, was very, very limited. There were no toilet facilities other than on deck. There was one tap for all the prisoners to use. They were allowed to fill their water bottles twice a day. One tap on the deck. And they spent most of the time in the holds. The, a few of the very sick were allowed on deck some of the time. Uh, but the others were in the holes in the most appalling conditions and yet being british soldiers like they do all over the world um they did their best to have fun and enjoy themselves they played cards and gambled and told jokes and this sort of thing
0: i think also one organized a concert
1: yeah absolutely yes he did (laughs) which is quite extraordinary Paid the performers of cigarettes. I'm not quite sure where he got them, but
0: so they sail out of here in late uh, September. They they're hugging the China coast up past Shanghai.
1: That's right. And then a submarine, the USS Grouper, saw the Lisbon Maru, saw its route, and then went ahead and let, lay an ambush. And as it got closer, it then started firing torpedoes at it. It fired a total of six torpedoes, but in those days torpedoes were not very accurate, and it, just one of them hit. But that that was enough to do the damage it hit the propeller and caused a big gaping hole in the in the hull. Uh, but it took the ship 24 hours to sink. During that time, as soon as the Japanese realised that they were under attack, they put all the prisoners back down in the holds and told them to stay there. There was no longer any food, any water, they weren't allowed up to the toilets, or, or to have access to water, and they just sat there and waited for 24 hours. And then, a bit later on, they. Japanese decided to take off. There were 778, I think, Japanese soldiers on board. Uh, They were taken off the ship and at the same time they battened down the hatches on the holds to keep the prisoners in with the apparent intention that as the ship went down they would all drown. And so they spent the night in absolute terror and fear. No light, no water, no air, no no fresh air, whilst they waited for for the ship to sink. And then at the last minute, Colonel Monkey Stewart, who was the commanding officer of 1st Battalion of the Middlesex Regiment, who was also in charge of all the prisoners, organised an escape. He got Lieutenant Miles Howell, who got hold of a, a very sharp, heavy butcher's knife from somewhere. No one knows quite where it came from. And he managed to do a breakout uh, at about 9 o'clock in the morning, just before the ship sank. And as soon as they started coming out, they were shot at. They managed to open the hatches on the other two holds and people jumped into the sea to save their lives and were being shot at all the time by the Japanese soldiers.
0: Bearing in mind also that many of these men, these are not fit men to start off with. These are a lot of men who are already malnourished some have uh, beriberi where they were downstairs in the holds. I mean, you could only have a certain amount of people lying down at any time. They had to take it in turns. And uh, beriberi, in fact, it affects the feet, doesn't it, uh, when people have that? It's a muscular.
1: I'm not sure what, what beriberi does, but I know it, it causes great, great agony, uh, really, really painful.
0: So these people are, are, you know, they're they're now in this situation where they're held in the holds in the dark. They're trying to break out. And I spoke uh, years ago to, uh, he's uh, now passed away, but Jack Etienne, and he told me that, um, and I think he also had great difficulties dealing with that, that he went up the ladder to get out of the hold and he was the last man, because the, the ladder then broke. Yes,
1: th- this was the, the Royal Artillery in, in number three hold. They had the worst time of all. First of all, uh, they were closest to, uh, to where the hole was on the side of the ship. They had no light. They were given by the Japanese three candles and a pump, a, four, a four-man hand pump, and they were told it's your responsibility to keep the ship afloat. And they spent all night on that pump utterly exhausting themselves and every few minutes someone would collapse and someone else would take over and it was at about nine o'clock in the morning when when they all eventually totally collapsed of of utter exhaustion and that's when the ship then started taking in much more water and started heaving and began the actual sinking and as as you say as they started to escape their ladder broke so having spent all night trying to keep the ship afloat most of them then didn't get out because the ladder had broken. They couldn't get out of the hold.
0: And so what happened to them then? They were then started singing.
1: Uh, yes, they went down singing. It's a long way to Tipperary.
0: how did you feel when you were you'd taken this account from the lisbon maru association which was set up by the late nelson Marr in 2005 when he learned of this incident and it resulted in fact in a toing and froing of charles jordan who was a survivor actually went to the islands where some of these men were saved and also there was a group of fishermen who actually came down to Hong Kong and and the Lisbon Maru Association were central to that. You then took this account of the fishermen and began to translate it.
1: Yes, despite having known about the Lisbon Maru incident from when I first joined the army, I hadn't really known much about the detail. Uh, so I didn't know anything about the fisherman doing a rescue. All I knew was the ship had gone down, Monkey Stewart had had arranged the escape.
0: Monkey Stewart?
1: That was his name. Moncrief was his was his real name, but he was, his nickname was Monkey. And he was such a charismatic man, he was so well-respected, he managed to stop panic, because when, when they realised the ship went down, he ordered abandoned ship. The first thing that happened was total panic, and he managed to stop that in its tracks, just by shouting out, steady the middle section, remember who you are. Um, and then the the exit then became orderly um, and much more effective, um, and panic stopped.
0: What happened to Monkey Stewart?
1: Uh, he died later in prisoner of war camp in Japan, sadly, as did over 200 of the prisoners. But coming back to the, the point, as I say, during the time I was in the army, although I knew of the story, I wasn't aware of the fishermen doing the rescue. It was only after I'd been in Hong Kong after I left the army, that I became aware of their role in this and what extraordinary courage they'd had to go out whilst the Japanese were shooting uh, and rescue these guys that
2: they didn't know who they were. They just knew they were human beings that needed to be rescued. After the Lisbon Maru sank, the sea was full of scattered wreckage, corpses and rubbish. Hundreds of prisoners of war who were potential survivors were in the sea, struggling for all they were worth. Because the Japanese army had not provided the ship with enough lifeboats or lifeboats and similar equipment, those prisoners of war who were unable to grab hold of floating material, who did not have the strength to carry on, were swallowed up one after another by the Merciless Sea. The place where the incident happened was near the Zhongjie chain of islands at the extreme east of the Zhou archipelago, which includes the two small islands of Qingbang and Miaozi Hu. These were two totally isolated coastal islands with an area of about two square kilometers, and after the Japanese army occupied Zhou Shan, the 2,000 fishermen on the islands were cut off from the outside. World. At first, the fishermen actually did not know there had been a maritime disaster. They only saw cloth and other things scattered on the sea and were startled into discovering there had been a shipwreck only when the tide brought the prisoners of war towards the islands. Because the clothes of many of the prisoners of war were dilapidated, the fishermen could not distinguish whether they were Japanese or Allied soldiers. But the fishermen believed that regardless of who they were, so long as they were floating on the sea, they had to rescue them. They threw into the sea the cloth and other things they had salvaged, and even the fresh fish, so as to make space to load even more victims. All the fishing households on Qingbang Island were mobilised by the five men, Zhao Xiaoru, Tang Gun, a Ajo, Tang Ru Liang and Xu Yu Song who told them it was a matter of life and death they launched 30 fishing vessels making 44 rescue missions saving 278 British prisoners including the 62 saved by Xifu San Island Hu Island launched 16 fishing boats instigated by the five men Shen Wanxiao Wu Seng, Lu Deren Shun Yuan-Sing and Shun A-Ming, making 21 rescue missions, rescuing 106 British prisoners. Fishmen from both islands spared no effort and continued the rescue until midnight, saving a total of 384 British prisoners. Because the fishing boats had a limited capacity, they could only rescue around 10 or so prisoners each time. Perhaps because they were exhausted, the prisoners did not jostle to be the first to squeeze onto the boats, but calmly waited for the next rescue by the fishermen. By going backwards and forwards again and again, the fishermen thus transported the prisoners, one small group at a time, back to the island. Many of the prisoners of war were unable to wait for the fishing boats to come back and pick them up, because they had used up nearly all their energy they sank into the sea, never able to return home.
0: How did you feel when you were dealing with that information? I mean, I find this account, it's very harrowing. You know, there's a lot of hope. I'm jumping ahead again, but, you know, you have the elderly Charles Jordan who comes to the islands, he's age 87, and like many of these men, they didn't talk about it. They arrived back, those that managed to survive, they arrived back, they want to get on with their lives, and so you have wives and uh, children who often don't know about these incidents until decades later or find it in an old diary or in Charles Jordan's case he actually wrote an article for the Lisbon Maru Association and that's how his family found out now I get great hope from people like Charles Jordan him saying you know that you've got to enjoy the moment and and, I mean my goodness when you've been through an experience like that I would imagine that you are very content with many ordinary things in life
1: Absolutely, I think you're quite right and most of these people didn't talk about it after the event But going back to how I felt, I mean my first real understanding of the the, the full story was when I read Tony Bannon's book Which I found remarkable in that it was was written in a very careful academic style Forensic in its analysis and, and reporting of exactly what had happened Without any emotion expressed by the author and yet the emotion that was being suffered and the the sufferings that that the soldiers were going through screamed at you page after page and it was almost impossible to turn the page without wiping tears from your eyes and that's when I first sort of understood the the full story and then I met Nelson Ma before sadly he died a few years ago and since then I've been working closely with the Lisbon Marine Association to help do what I can to keep alive the, the memory of this story
0: So you were able to take these accounts, so they were written accounts by these fishermen?
1: Yes, the the, the Elizabeth River Association went with Charles Jordan on, on his visit, and they interviewed fishermen. They got copies of Chinese newspaper accounts. One of those accounts produced some hitherto unpublished Chinese documents. And they also took some school children with them, who were really interesting because they They went there to learn history by exposure, as they they call it, rather than just from books. And it seems to have been a very successful experiment.
0: And this was in 2005 when Charles Jordan was 87. Now in terms of the, if we go back to 1942, so you have a situation where you've got Miles Howell he's trying to, he gets a butcher's knife, manages to open one of the hatches that's been battened down. The soldiers are then being fired upon on top of the troop ship deck, so they're jumping into the sea. There's also accounts from people who couldn't swim. One of the survivors who's picked up by the Chinese fisherman and later hidden by them is unable to swim he's just hanging on to a piece of wood and they're being shot at in in the sea now where were these fishermen? The fishermen
1: were on three of the local islands these particular islands are called Dongji which means extreme east because that, that is the easternmost part of China the fishermen saw the ship going down and thought great there'll be some stuff floating off the ship flotsam and jetsam we must go and pick stuff up they were particularly interested in cloth. So they rowed up and picked up cloth. And when they were out there, they suddenly realised that there were hundreds of bodies in the water, many of them still alive. So they threw the cloth overboard that they'd come to get and started picking up the survivors. Once they realised who they were that they were picking up, they were allied prisoners of war who had also been fighting the Japanese. They then redoubled their efforts and went out time and time again in their boats regardless of the fact that the Japanese were shooting, and rescued a total of 384 between them. But in doing this, the fact that they did it also prevented further mass slaughter, because it seems the Japanese were trying to just kill off all the prisoners that were in the water. But once the Chinese had picked some up, they realised they couldn't get away with it. So they then stopped shooting and started picking up survivors themselves.
0: So the Chinese fishermen pick up 384 of these prisoners of war, and uh, what happens to them then?
1: First of all, they are desperately tired, hungry, exhausted, virtually naked most of them. They were taken in, fed, clothing was lent to them, and they were shelter. Some of them were sheltered in the local temple, others in people's houses. And these villagers had almost barely enough food themselves to survive. But they dug into their reserves, pulled out everything they could find, including sugar, which, which must have been the really most, most precious thing in wartime.
0: Yeah, they seem to have could. given them a meal of sweet potato and dried fish.
1: Yes, but the sweet potato laced with sugar, which obviously was brilliant for the prisoners. And I think if they hadn't done this, probably many more of the prisoners would have died of exposure. But they really looked after them well, and all the survivors who have commented, have commented particularly about the the treatment they got from these villagers.
0: I'm talking with Major Brian Finch, the translator of A Faithful Record of the Lisbon Maru Incident. So when we look back at this incident, I mean, it's, you know, in, in, in terms of these 384 prisoners of war being saved by the Chinese fishermen, I mean, that's very unique in terms of the Second World War, I mean this Chinese fishermen saving allied prisoners of war. Uh,
1: Indeed it is, Um, and it's sufficiently important that when President Xi Jinping visited the UK in 2015 on a state visit, he made a very important speech at the state banquet standing next to Her Majesty, and it was as you would expect a speech about bilateral relations and the importance of it, and and, and how our two nations work together, etc, etc. In the speech, he made reference to wartime cooperation, and specifically referred to the Lisbon-Maru incident, when the Chinese fishermen rescued British prisoners of war. So he regards it as important.
0: And uh, doesn't he have a geographical link to that area, or, uh, Xi Jinping? Uh,
1: yes, he, he was party secretary of Zhejiang province, which, which is the province uh, where this happened. And it was he who personally authorised the visit of Charles Jordan in 2005.
0: In terms of looking back at that time, as you say, it's uh, historically also, I mean, apart from utterly tragic, it's also very interesting to see this link between China and Britain at that time. In terms of the ship itself now, does it still lie at the bottom of the sea?
1: Uh, Yes, it's still there.
0: Now as well as now translating and giving us access to this account by these fishermen, you also... um, Uh, you know and i think it's also important going forward because a lot of these people are now passed away but there's still i mean the fishermen's families are still very aware of this
1: yes of course they are yes in the book there is a particular account by the daughter of one of the people involved in the escape of three prisoners who were hidden in a cave and then managed to get to chungqing the the wartime capital
0: Yes, because if we say there was 384 picked up, the Japanese forces then came onto the island. They, they put them, the fishermen under a lot of pressure. In fact, some were actually beaten um, in order for them to hand over the prisoners. And the fact, many of those prisoners of war then came forward because they didn't want uh, the fishermen to be tortured or for any of these communities to be compromised because of them. But as you say, they, they hid three away.
1: Yes, they hid three in a cave, uh, which was an extremely dangerous thing to do for the fishermen because if they'd been caught, the three would probably have been shot and so would, I imagine, some of the villagers who'd helped them. And they were hidden in a cave for a few days until the immediate heat died away and they were then smuggled to other islands and a very long, tortuous route through a variety of local anti-Japanese resistance guerrilla units. And the deputy commander of the local unit, a man called Miao kai was responsible for the successful running of this operation. And his daughter, Miao Trefen, gives an account in the book, a very detailed account of how this operation was conducted and who was involved and, and the islands they went to. The fact that they had to smuggle a doctor in the middle of the night from yet another island to, to treat these guys who 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 were feverish and pay him a lot of money and send him back all all under cover of darkness and th- this account is is really detailed and fascinating and then after the uh, the back of the book after the translation, I have added another piece which is an account by one of the escapees, uh, Mr. Evans, who wrote an account at the time of the escape as it happened as he saw it, so you you've then got the mirror image of. The Chinese account of the escape and, and the escapee's account of, of, of the escape, which are interesting to compare.
0: You mentioned that some schoolchildren also were along with Charles Jordan. These, these kids were from the area or from Hong Kong?
1: No, these were fr- from Hong Kong. But they went out from Hong Kong and they learnt a lot. They learnt a lot about the lifestyle of simple fishermen whose values were rather different to the frenetic competitive lifestyle in Hong Kong. And they also learnt from seeing Charles Jordan and the fishermen, and learning about what had happened, and being on a boat that went out to cast flowers onto the sea over the area where the Lisbon Maru had sunk, and watched Charles Jordan weeping as he was doing this. And they they shared in in his his sadness, and they learnt a lot from that, and they wrote accounts, which are also in the book, of what they had seen and 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 what they had. Thought, and they're all very different accounts, but they all come to similar conclusions, that the wisdom of youth, that we should all learn from the horrors of war to do our best to prevent further conflicts in the future.
0: It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary To the sweet My thanks to Major Brian Finch talking there on the book A Faithful Record of the Lisbon Maru Incident translating the accounts of the heroic fishermen in this wartime tragedy. The book is published by Proverse Hong Kong and is part of the Royal Asiatic Society Hong Kong Study Series. My thanks also to my colleague Todd Harding. I recently had David Bellis of the Hong Kong history website gwoolo.com on the programme and I'd like to tell you about one of his super photo talks which he's got coming up. In this talk, David Bellis presents a selection of photographs from his collection showing the audience a Hong Kong that has long since disappeared. He illustrates the photos with fascinating stories of Hong Kong's past. Most of the photos were taken around 1900 to 1930. So there are views right from the 1880s up to the 1960s. The talk is next Thursday, June the 20th, hosted by the Royal Geographical Society Hong Kong on Thursday evening at JC Cube at Taekwun Centre for Heritage and Arts in Central. If you'd like more details on David's talk, then go to David's website, gwoolo.com. Just go to the first page and scroll down to Dates for Your Diary. So that's gwoolo.com and the first page, Dates for Your Diary. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.